All right, please turn in your Bibles to uh, the book of Acts in chapter 20. Continuing in our series, um, The Church on Fire, looking through the book of Acts. And uh, we're going to turn to Acts 20 and verse 17 as we continue uh, on a theme of uh, five ways the leaders that leaders can love the church well. We've seen this in Paul's uh, interaction with the leaders from Ephesus and his teaching to them when he meets them on his way back to um, Jerusalem, Acts chapter 20, and we're going to start in verse 17, and if you would stand for the reading of the Word of God, I would sure appreciate that if you're able to. Verse 17, from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church, and when they had come to him, he said to them, you know from the first day that I came to Asia in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials, which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. How I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And see, now I go bound in the Spirit, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy in the ministry which I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we uh, look at how leaders can lead well and how they can love the church, Lord, we want to see these principles, and Lord, we ask the Holy Spirit to apply them. God, in each of our hearts, there are struggles that are going on right now. Lord, there's battles, there's hurts. God, there's also triumphs and there's grace. There's faith, sometimes great, sometimes small. But Lord, you know what we need today, what each heart needs, what encouragement we need from the gospel. We come to you not as souls trying to earn your favor, but as souls who rest securely in the favor that Christ has secured on our behalf. So we, we ask you as desperate people to a great God, Lord, help us to see what we need to see, to grow where we need to grow, so that we might experience joy in you to your glory. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Just kind of a reminder where we're at. We're kind of in a section that's taken us a little bit of time. And, uh, and I will say, you know, as we put out the Advent candles, and, and I was thinking about these ahead of time, and I've, I've been actually working on a message on peace. And I thought, boy, I wish I could un unveil that today. Uh, I am not quite ready for that. And, uh, and so, uh, please be in prayer for me uh, as I try to take God's Word and be able to put it in a way that will give you uh, absolute confidence 
in God's not only working peace in your heart, but helping you be a peacemaker in your world. And uh, I would, I'm looking forward to that. It's not quite ready yet, but this is where we're at this morning. So five ways a leader can uh, love the church well. And so what this does for us, it, it tells you as a church, what should you be looking for in your leadership? And how can I encourage my leaders as they grow in these areas? Uh, but it, it lets you know, hey, listen, whenever we're looking for leaders, this is the kind of people we're looking for. And it's a message to us. It's me preaching to myself and the leaders, uh, all the leaders of our, of our church, uh, really thinking through these things so that we can love the church well. Uh, if the church is, in fact, um, the, the body of Christ uh, revealing Christ to this world through the gospel, preaching of the gospel, uh, if we are demonstrating the manifold grace of God, then it's very important we get it right. Wouldn't you agree? And uh, we want to get it right. And so help us as we do that. So uh, first of all, we looked at the leader's manner. And what we saw is that we must have consistent Christ-like character. He says, you remember how I lived from the first day even until now. Character comes first. Before charisma, even before competence. Although competence is important, charisma can be helpful. Ultimately, it's Christ-like character that humbly serves and even suffers for the spiritual health of others. Uh, then we continued on and looked at the leader's message and what we found here through the part that we read and then also through 25 through the end of chapter 20. Uh, we're taking this whole section and breaking it down into parts. Um, we saw that a leader is called to teach all of God's Word to all the people all the time with all their heart. <laughs> uh, big task. Uh, and then we started looking at the leader's motives, and that's where we're at today. And what we see is four choices that should motivate a leader. Four choices that motivate a leader. And we dealt with the very first one uh, this uh, past week. And here it is. Um, leaders choose ultimate eternal joy over happiness. And we mean easy or mere happiness. Uh, joy is something much deeper uh, happiness is tied to circumstances, but joy is tied to a person, right? Jesus Christ. And we can have joy in Him, even though the path we're currently on is pretty rocky. <laughs> uh, it's got a lot of obstacles, uh, and it seems like there's ambushes on either, either side of the road that are constantly looking to jump out and knock us down. Uh, and so what we learned is about joy is that we're called to serve by joy, for joy, and with joy. By joy in the fact that Christ has called us to joy. I mean, that's the Christian calling. That is the birthright of the Christian is to experience maximum joy in Jesus, both now and forevermore. Now, again, not happiness. That's different. But joy. Uh, we serve by joy, but we also serve for joy. Our ministry is a mission of joy, to spread joy in the king to the nations, right? Man, could there be a greater mission for the Christian than to say, hey, what are you all about? What's your purpose in life? Oh, nothing much, just spreading joy to the nations. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. And because it makes the king happy, King Jesus happy, it makes us happy. <laughs> and that's what we do. And we also serve with joy. That means if... Uh, a whole purpose is experience joy in Jesus and then to spread that joy, then we ought to serve with joy. And what we learned is this, is if you don't have joy, it's a problem. 
here's something to remember. If your joy is lacking, you should be acting. We said it's not enough. We looked even in Revelation as the church that lost its first love, its passion for Christ. And so we, too, must return to that joy in Him. That is the source and the flow of all ministry. And so ministry becomes pure joy. And that's what we must always be seeking is joy in Christ. So leaders choose ultimate eternal joy over easy or mere happiness. But not only that, we also choose faithfulness over human success. I think the church has been infected with success syndrome. Uh, it's all around us. Um, you know, and the metrics for measuring success in the church are, to lack a better term, jacked up. <laughs> it's messed up because we've borrowed the strategy from the corporate world, and it's given birth to what is known as the church growth movement. And somewhere along the way, we stopped asking ourselves, what is biblical? And we started asking, what is working? <laughs> and that's a problem. Because not only is the glory of the church in Christ, the power of the church in Christ, but even the methods are all in Christ. And he tells us what they are in his word. We started cheering things like the fastest growing church instead of celebrating the most faithful church. You see, ministry is not measured in months. It's measured in decades. And that's the kind of church that we ought to be aiming for. That's the kind of church that Paul was building. And it was not easy. It was not quick. It took a long time and took an incredible amount of patience and perseverance. You see, people love quick, visible success, don't we? <laughs> uh, matter of fact, we have very little patience for things like faithfulness because it's not always easily evident. So we tend to judge by breadth instead of depth. We judge by outward success rather than inward character. We judge by short-term results rather than long-term faithfulness. But let me assure you this morning that God is not into flash or fads. He's into faithfulness talks a lot about it. And so, we should be all about faithfulness too. Faithfulness does produce fruitfulness, but it often takes longer and looks a lot different than what we might imagine. Now, you have your Bibles. If you would just turn with me over, you can keep your place there in Acts, but turn over to a well-known Psalm, Psalm 1. And in this psalm, we see that faithfulness that Scripture envisions. In Psalm 1, he says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in this path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. And he shall be a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf shall not wither. And whatever he does shall prosper. But the ungodly, they're not so. 
They're like chaff, which the wind just blows away. Therefore, the ungodly will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. There's two kind of pictures here. Uh, chaff, when we think of wheat. And tree is exactly what you think of. Think about the differences for a moment between wheat and a tree that produces fruit. Relatively speaking, wheat grows pretty quick, doesn't it? How long would you say wheat takes to grow between planting and harvest? Orville, you probably know. About three months. So let's say eight to ten months at best, right? How long does it take for a tree to be fully grown and producing at the apex of its fruitfulness? I don't know, but I'm thinking it's longer than eight to ten months. Someone said five years. So it says the ungodly are like chaff, which are blown away quickly. They don't last very long. It comes in a moment, ends in a moment. But for the tree that is very fruitful, it takes quite a bit of time. But a tree also stands longer and produces longer than a wheat, doesn't it? A wheat's for a season. But a tree just keeps on producing year after year. A storm can come through and devastate wheat pretty quickly. It's much weaker than a well-established tree, which will endure much longer. So a tree stands longer, produces more fruit. Now, sometimes God does give miraculous growth. Oh, we see that in the book of Acts. We see in some places where Paul went, there was immediate response because of the Holy Spirit's work, and there was quick growth. But keep in mind that even those churches that were planted did not continue growing at the same pace as they did at the beginning. And not every church experiences the same thing that Pentecost does. That was the beginning of the gospel uh, being preached to the nations. Even Jesus could gather crowds of thousands when he was giving out the free food. But then he started talking about the cost of discipleship, and people didn't want to hang around very long. That crowd got considerably smaller. You see, if you give people what they want, you can get easy crowds. That will diminish just as quickly. Give them what they want, and you can attract a crowd. You give them what they need, and it's a little more difficult. But that's what we need. You see, we're not race car drivers. We're long-haul truckers. <laughs> Ministry is a, a marathon, not a sprint. And it takes time, and it takes patience to grow depth. What kept Paul going? Well, was it the amazing crowds and the amazing results? Was it the accolades of adoring crowds? <laughs> You look at this, and what you find in Acts chapter 20, it says, so that I could just be faithful and run the race that God gave me and fulfill the ministry of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the kind of person I want to be. That's the kind of person you should want your leaders to be. That's the kind of person you should want to be. We want to be faithful. We want to finish the race well. That's why we choose faithfulness over human success. But we also choose Christ and his people over selfish ambition. Notice what Paul says there again in Acts chapter 20, when he says, in verse 24, after talking about how the Holy Spirit told him that change and tribulations are awaiting him, 
He says, yet none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself. He's saying more here, folks, than just saying, I'm not afraid to die, as though somehow he's a, a little bit off kilter, didn't quite understand the, the gravity of the situation. I'm not afraid to die, uh, as though it's some bravado or braggadocia. No. Paul knew exactly what the cost was, and he says, I don't count my life dear. He's not just saying, uh, if I die, then it's a life well spent. That's certainly true, but he's saying something much bigger than that. He's saying, my life is not dear to myself. The value of my life isn't of what I get out of my life but rather what I invest for my Lord and His people. He's saying, I'm living for something bigger than my personal hopes, my dreams, my desires, because you see, that is far too small of a goal in life. It's too little. You know, the, the problem with Christians is we think too small because we only think about our world. We think of our world kind of like a selfie. We're right at the middle of it, and what's going around it is not quite as important. But think about God. His picture is so much bigger. It goes from eternity past to eternity future. Well, Paul was saying, I don't count my life dear because there's something of greater value than just hanging on to my life, my time, my stuff, or even my breath itself. You see, he asked himself this seminal question, what exactly did Christ give for me? You see, often we ask ourselves, what am I willing to give to Christ? But what we should ask is this, well, what did he give for me? What did he give up for me? What did he give for my good? He gave up the fullness of his glory, right? He was in heaven, surrounded by angels. He did not consider that glory something to be grasped onto, the Bible says, but it made himself of no reputation, came to earth, took on human flesh. You look at yourself in the mirror, and you might be impressed. God's not. <laughs> and we look at ourselves and say, man, I'm looking pretty good today. I'm looking pretty fly for you 80s kids. <laughs> but you know what? Here you took someone who was the essence of glory, unbound, uncovered, sheer glory in all its beauty, shining in heaven, and he clothed it with human flesh. <laughs> he gave up the free exercise of his own attributes. He had all power, but he restrained it. He had all wisdom, yet restrained it in his humanity. He had so much that he he willingly set aside for the purpose of fulfilling God's plan, his rights, and yet his, and even his very life. So the question is, is what are you willing to give? Would you, would you give your health? Would you give your free time? Would you give up your rights? Would you give up your desires? What would you give? You see, our biggest problem is that our perspective is, is really wrong, <laughs> It's really completely backwards or, 
upside down depending on what illustration you like better. It's not right. You see, we think of God as being part of our story when really we are a part of His. And, and that really matters how you see that. Because if God is a part of your story, you say, this is my life, my job, my family, my stuff, my plans, my futures, my dreams, and my hopes. This is mine. Now, God, what part are you going to play in these things in my life? But see, uh, you look at Scripture, and, and there's a story arc from Genesis to Revelation. I read recently, someone said, you know why the Bible wasn't given to us as just a topical book of how-tos, you know, like an encyclopedia, you say, you know, how does an engine work? So, you flip an encyclopedia to engine, you start reading about it. Why isn't the Bible organized about like that, where it's like, okay, I need to, I need to find out more about love, so let me, let, me, let me look, and there's a whole section just on love, all together, all gathered up in one easy-to-find location. Why doesn't the Bible do that? Why is instead it's just full of stories? Bunches of them. 66 books, as a matter of fact, full of stories that really are all about one story. You see, because that's what the Bible is. It's just not a how-to manual. It is a story. And that story is God's story. And from Genesis to Revelation, it's all His story. From eternity past or eternity future, God is writing a story. And it's a redemptive one in which He's drawing sinners to Himself and then for all eternity, pouring out his love lavishly and his glory lavishly upon them because he's full of mercy. Once you realize that, you don't start looking at the Bible as, okay, uh, God, show me how I can make my life a little better. We start saying, God, your story was going way before I got here. It's going to keep on going way after I'm gone. I mean, earthly speaking, our souls live forever, of course. And we start saying, God, Here's the thing is, is you're not part of my story. I'm part of yours. You're the story of the ages, and I'm, I am a speck in this story, an important speck, because I think God cares for his people. You see, once we realize that, something changes in our hearts, and we stop saying, God, how do you fit into this? God, you're a puzzle piece. How do I fit this in with all my other pieces? Instead, you realize that when the puzzle's completed, it's God. And every piece of your puzzle of your, the puzzle of your life is really all about God. And so we start saying, okay, so God, this is your story. So how does my job fit into your story? How does my family fit into your story? How does my choices today fit into your story? You see, once you come to that conclusion, then everything begins to change. Really, your biggest dream and ambition is really nothing compared to God's purpose for us in Christ Jesus. And so you realize my job is about God and His glory through Christ Jesus. And my family and my ambitions and my purposes and every part of my life is really all about that. And Christians then are thinking far too small because they're the center of the universe instead of God. And we're very small and God is very big. And what you see is Paul's motivated by the immeasurable worth of Christ and His people. Paul didn't consider his own dreams and desires as the most important thing. He considered it something to be invested into which was far greater, and that is Christ who is the Redeemer King and His kingdom people. 
You see, we tend to sacrifice the most on what we consider to be the greatest of value. The problem is, is that too many people consider themselves as being the highest value. And Paul said, no, no, that's all wrong. The highest value is Christ and his people. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul said, the love of Christ compels us. By the way, not the love I have for Christ, but the, the love that he has for me. Christ's love does something to me. When I understand how much he really loves me and how from eternity past he planned to bring me to himself in an eternal relationship, covenantal relationship, so that in the ages to come he might lavish out the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Once I understand all that and understand his love for me, he says this, because we judge this, that if one died for all, then all died, and that he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. He's like, once I understand Christ's love for me, it makes no sense for me to live for myself anymore. You know what makes sense? Living for him. So once we think this way, we just don't give of ourselves. We give ourselves. There's a big difference. You see, if we look at this life and say, I'm going to negotiate how much of my life I give to Christ, how much I give to Christ people in the local church. I'm going to look at, I'm going to negotiate my pain, so to speak. What's my pain levels? How much am I willing to give up? I mean, I got a lot of stuff I love to spend time on. So how am I going to invest in a way in which I don't feel guilty when the pastor preaches? Okay, nobody likes that. That guy's got to chill out. We say, how much do I give so I don't feel guilty, but still get to do mostly what I want? That's one way people live. But, the, but Paul kind of presenting a different way. I don't count my life dear to myself. He's saying, listen, uh, because life is all about Christ and his people, I'm looking to find ways where I can invest more into that. As a matter of fact, even all those other things like hobbies and families and jobs and, and ambitions and dreams, all that is about him too. It's kind of like mowing the lawn. I, I run into guys occasionally that really love their lawn. They love to mow their lawn. They love to seed it. They love it to look good. Uh, you know, and their landscaping is immaculate. And I look at them and I say, I don't understand that. <laughs> because I don't get excited about my lawn. My lawn is something that I do so I can do other things. Because my wife's like, Jeremy, the lawn needs to be mowed. Yes, I will do that so that I can get to something I'd really rather do, something I'd much more enjoy. But there's other guys, they actually plan for, I get to spend time Saturday on my lawn. I don't understand that. It's a little foreign to me. Something's wrong. Not with me, just so you know. No, I'm kidding. But they see it as something to be enjoyed. And really, honestly, I should enjoy my lawn. Not because the lawn in itself is a value, but because it is a part of that greater picture in which God has given me a house that has a lawn. And I could ask myself, God, how do I mow my lawn for your glory? How can I see the joy of a lawn and being part of all that you have given me through common grace and, and through just love and, and good gifts that you give your children. 
I think that's why a lot of people lose joy in ministry. Somewhere along the way, the joy they had in what they were doing, they lost sight of what it was really about. I know that's when I lose mine. So we are motivated by the immeasurable worth of Christ and his people. But we also learn to embrace ignorance. He says, not knowing the things that will happen to me. Now, someone out there is thinking right now, Pastor, that phrase explains a lot. You saying you embrace ignorance makes perfect sense. It explains so much that is about the conversations I've had with you since I've known you. You just embraced ignorance. That makes sense to me. <laughs> Maybe you should embrace wisdom. <laughs> no, understand what I'm saying. Paul said, I don't know the things that are happening to me. You see, he was okay with not knowing for sure that things would be okay. Because he was okay with understanding that the okay was not in his hands, but the okay was in the hands of ones who could really make it okay. Did you follow that? I think I didn't. I think I just, I don't know where I ended, started and where I ended up. No, you understand what I'm saying. The, the fact is, is we want in ministry to, and in life to say, I, want, I have to know it's okay. Tell me, promise me it's going to be okay. If I invest myself, if there's a price tag on this, tell me it's going to be worth it at the end. Tell me it's going to be okay. Tell me that if I minister to someone, they're going to appreciate it. Tell me that if I give up of my time, there will be people who will, in fact, grow, and, and they'll be so thankful for the ministry I had to them. Tell me that. Tell me that I won't get my heart broken. Tell me that it, it won't be so difficult at times I want to give up. Tell me it's going to be okay. And Paul says, it's okay if I don't know it's going to be okay, because I know the one who makes it okay, and it's okay if only he knows it's going to be okay. In other words, it's okay because God is in it, not because I'm controlling it. And he says, I don't have to know. There's some things that we will never know until we get to eternity. I mean, think about it. There's some things that maybe God in his wisdom and his grace will He'll give you the answers still in this life. Like, there's the things that have happened to me in ministry. I said, I don't understand why that happened. Sometimes God actually shows me. But there's a whole lot of things I'm not going to know until I get to heaven. Is that okay? It doesn't feel okay sometimes. But it is. I don't need to know all of the future because I know that God knows, and that's okay. Some people will never take a risk until they know exactly what it's going to cost them. Paul was okay with just saying, I don't, I know it's going to be change, I know it's going to be tribulations. Beyond that, I don't know. But I do know this God knows, and He'll be there, and that is okay. So the question is are you willing to serve in ministry even if you know you're going to be criticized, unfairly accused, gossiped about? forgotten, all simply because it brings the king joy, and it helps expand the joy of his people. But not only embracing ignorance, he, he embraced the pain and pressure. He says that change and tribulations, chains is a Greek word that means chains. 
shackles. He's going to be imprisoned. And that's a pretty painful circumstance. How many of you have uh, ever had to, or went and visited someone who has been in jail? Or in prison, perhaps? I've been to a federal prison before. I was terrified. And it was also made me very sad. Because there's a sense in which you see all these individuals who long to be outside, who are trapped inside. Paul says, I know that's my future and that's okay. And this isn't like a modern system jail like we may experience in America. These were dark, dank, dangerous places. Horrible places to be in most cases. Although Paul did have one house arrest, which was a little bit better. But not both of them were. (laughs) Or not all of them, I should say. But he also says that tribulations, tribulations means pressure. It means to, to put a weight on someone. Ministry includes times of pressure and discomfort. Now, as church members, well, let me start with this. As a church leader, I need to know ahead of time that that's what ministry is about. It's going to be pressure. There's going to be times of pain. There's times of weight on my heart. All of our leaders experience that. But as a church family, you should seek to minimize it. Uh, Your heart should be not, well, if you can't stand the heat, then get out of the kitchen. By the way, no one has said that to me. I praise the Lord. By the way, you guys are awesome in that. You guys are super awesome. You make our job so much easier. But understand that the church can really work to minimize that pressure as much as possible, minimize the painful circumstances, and they can minister to their leaders and actually expand their joy. It's not just about leaders expanding your joy, it's about you also expanding our joy. You see, church members ought to minister to their ministers. I fear in the Western church, many people think that the church should be really thankful to have them, when in reality, we should be very thankful to have the church. And you have a part more than you can imagine in playing and bringing joy to your leaders. As a matter of fact, we see this in Romans 1 when he says, I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift and to make you strong. That is that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. Whoa, whoa, whoa. dude, you're an apostle, man. <laughs> Paul, you're an apostle. You're going to be doing the blessing here. You know, getting that whole God's word and writing it down thing. But he told the Romans, I want to come visit you. You want to know why? Because I'm going to be encouraged by your faith, and you're going to be encouraged by my faith, and we're going to be encouraged together. You know, that's how every church ought to see leadership and people. The people ought to say, Pastor, I'm here to bless you, and you are, by the way, a tremendous blessing. I am more blessed than I should ever have a right to expect. And I'm thankful for that. But we bless you by bringing God's word to bear in your life in love. And by the way, loyal love. We love you no matter what. And also, you can love your pastor and your leaders by saying, Pastor, we're going to help your faith too. 
and so many of you have, in a, in, in a myriad of different ways. You've expressed your faith in Christ, which has helped my faith. You've encouraged me when I've been discouraged. You stood by me when I was stupid and made dumb, did dumb stuff. And all the other leaders are saying, yeah, you guys, he made the dumb choices. We try to stop him. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. We're in this together, right, guys? <laughs> we see that. And then we see in Hebrews 13, 17, obey those who have a rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. What he's saying is this, let them minister the word of God to you and respond well to it respond because sometimes we have to go and talk to people about things that we really would rather not it's painful for us but because we love you and because we want spiritual health in your life and because god has called us to shepherd people we have to sometimes go and talk to people and you know what sometimes you have to come and talk to me but can we all just say this we love each other and that'll never change so let's be comfortable with having to talk to each other about hard things because we love each other. As you serve with your gifts and we serve with ours, we all grow together and we have joy. Well, let me land this plane, okay? Marty, thinking about you. Land this plane. Let's live it out. Don't just give part of yourself, give yourself. Uh, that's exactly what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1-5. through 5. He says, Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in a great travel affliction and the abundance of their joy and deep poverty abounded to the riches of their liberality. Paul was taking up an offering for hurting people in Jerusalem, and he said, you guys need to get together a collection. And he, they did, and it was awesome. And he says, for I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, even beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with bus urgency that we should receive the gift and the fellowship of ministering to the saints. It's like when, when Timothy and, 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 and company showed up, he sent ahead of time to start the collections. They were like, Paul, take our money. Take it, take it, take it all. Honey, give me your purse. Take it all. Here you go. He's like, they implored them with urgency. Take our money, take it. That would make a Baptist pastor fall over. <laughs> pastor, take her money. We got too much of it. We just need to give it to you. <laughs> I'd say, eh, and I'd be gone. <laughs> just passed out right cold. But the, but the idea is this, and not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. He said, uh, Lord, all that we have and all that we are belong to you. That includes our money. And he says he also gave himself to us. Paul, God called you to lead us, and you say we need to take up an offering. So, Lord, uh, so, so by the Lord's help and the Lord's work in our, our life, we want to respond well to that, and we want to take up this offering. And they did. You see, we don't just give part of ourselves. Once we give ourselves, everything changes. Now, I'm not here to say, hey, uh, I'm just hoping that uh, offerings will increase after this message. Listen, this isn't about just money. That's one small part of your life. I'm talking about giving your life to Christ, not counting your life dear to yourself, but the value as an investment into Christ and his people. But secondly, let the hard parts of life push you toward Christ and his people because it gets hard. There's going to be pressure. There's going to be, even though not physical change, there's going to be points in time in which you're going to feel constrained 
and you're going to feel pain, and you're going to feel confined and pushed into a corner because life can get really, really dark sometimes. But when that happens, let it push you not away from Christ, but toward them. Not away from Christ's people, but toward them. And be part of the team. You know what is awesome about the church is we get to be on the team that we're rooting for. Isn't that awesome? Uh, this afternoon, I'm probably going to be rooting for the Chiefs. By the way, I actually got to help a person in Ohio get a Travis Kelsey jersey that really wanted one. I got to be part of that. And it's like, always glad to help a fellow Chiefs fan, you know. And on Sunday, we're both going to be yelling, touchdown, Kansas City, <laughs> right? So I'm really happy. Somewhere in Ohio, there's a person who's wearing a Travis Kelsey jersey today, and that's really making me happy. <laughs> okay, get back to the point. So being part of the team, I get to root for the Chiefs, but I'm not on the team. I just kind of root from the sidelines. But you know the church is awesome because we get to root for the very team that we're part of. We love the church, and we're rooting for each other, but we're on the team, and we get to do this together, and that's pretty amazing. Well, that's enough for today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I am so grateful for all that you do in this simple place. <laughs> very simple people that we have. We're all just people that love you and we love each other and, and we love our community, we love the world and, and we want to see the joy that you put in our hearts spread to, to everyone we can. But God, we're determined not to look at life like a selfie and to see the grand picture that we're in your story and you're doing something bigger with our lives than we can ever imagine. So when we minister to each other, we are doing eternal, heavenly supernatural things which you said you would empower us to do you gave us the gifts and then you empower us to use them how cool is that so heavenly father just help shape our thinking and help us to invest our lives wisely in jesus name amen thank you so much for being here uh please again be in prayer we have a meeting uh, family meeting next week, and we're going to be making some big choices, and uh, we want you to be part of that because we're all in this together. We're dismissed.